Hi, I'm Dan Pramack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Facebook. Today is Tuesday, June 23rd. The Dow is up, another Trump tweet kind of sorta gets taken down, and we're focused on who will get the coronavirus vaccine once there is a coronavirus vaccine. Let's start with the good news. Here's Dr. Anthony Fauci testifying today in front of a House committee. When, and I believe it will be when and not if, we get favorable candidates with good results, we will be able to make them available to the American public, as I said to this committee months ago, within a year from when we started, which would put us at the end of this calendar year and the beginning of 2021. Obviously, we all hope he's right. Creating a vaccine that's safe and effective, let alone manufacturing it at scale, is complicated. Deciding who might get it, then, is also complicated. Remember, many of the companies creating vaccines are doing so, at least in part, with government money. In the U.S., that means companies like Moderna are getting big grants from the NIH. In Germany, the federal government just bought a 300 million euro stake in one of its most promising vaccine developers, CureVac. And China's government, of course, is involved with its domestic vaccine developers. If a government is paying for a vaccine, it stands to reason that that government's citizens will get it first. After that, though, there are all sorts of questions. For example, does it go to the country that needs it most, even if it can't pay? How do geopolitical relationships work into it? And from a broader perspective, what does it mean for the future of pharmaceutical companies at a time when nine out of 10 Americans tell Gallup that they fear drug makers will leverage the pandemic to raise drug prices? We'll dig into all of that in 15 seconds with health policy expert, Dr. Zeke Emanuel. But first, this. We are joined now by Dr. Zeke Emanuel, a former Obama administration health policy official who currently is chair of the Department on Medical Ethics and Health Policy at UPenn. Dr. Emanuel, can we just start big picture? Has there ever been a similar historic analogy for what we're currently seeing in terms of this race for a vaccine, in terms of kind of the degree of demand and the global degree of demand? Not that I can recall for vaccines, maybe polio vaccine in the 1950s, this kind of race, although that was heavily done in the United States. But the only similar kind of races, maybe the Manhattan Project, the Human Genome Project. But this is unique in the vaccine world and the speed is also unique in the vaccine world. We got the genome from this virus not six months ago, and you already have human trials going on. That literally is warp speed. The warp speed piece of it, does it worry you at all that there could be some safety steps that not get skipped, but get glossed over a little bit? What worries me is we are going to rush And are we going to get all the safety data, especially when you're rushing, you can't get long-term safety data. And so I do think that's a concern and we're going to have to monitor very carefully. We will get very good short-term safety data, and that's probably the most important that we need. The greatest vaccine developer of all time, Maurice Heilman, said that he rested easy only after 3 million people got his vaccines from the safety concerns. One of the things I'm curious about here is this question of if we get a vaccine, whether it comes from Moderna or CureVac or whoever comes out with it, who's going to get it? Who's going to get it first? And one of the pieces of this is that governments, U.S. government is obviously helping fund Moderna's. The German government just bought a piece of CureVac, an actual equity stake in it. Does it stand to reason that whichever 
company comes out with it first, the country that funded it, that's where it's going to first be deployed? Yes, I think that is a safe assumption. We should make clear that not every company is taking money from a government. Pfizer, for example, is fully funding its development all on its own. But Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, Moderna, as you mentioned, Inovio, these companies have all taken BARDA funds from the United States government. So we can assume that a country is going to try to control a vaccine that's developed in its country and give it to its citizens first. There's a question is, all right, say Johnson & Johnson claims that it'll have a billion doses by the time if it's vaccine proof successful because it's actually manufacturing at risk, that is, before the final results. The same is true of AstraZeneca and all these companies. So maybe they give it to the U.S. first. That's 330 million. That still leaves you 670 million doses to distribute to the world. And a big question is, who gets it in the world and how do we distribute it? Even in this country, we're not going to have all 330 million doses available immediately. So the question is, who gets it first? And how do you think that gets resolved? You said, let's just imagine that it is J&J or or another US-based company and they're able to dose America and that part gets done first. Is it highest bidder? Is it strategic allies from a geopolitical standpoint? How do you game it out? I like neither of those approaches. We don't think that a life-saving item like, say, organs for transplantation or vaccines ought to be distributed by who can afford it. Everyone agrees, I believe, and even AstraZeneca in its press release said that it should be based upon fair and equitable distribution. And the highest bidder is not a fair and equitable distribution. Everyone agrees to that. We actually, at Penn, I've developed an international group representing 10 or 11 countries trying to develop a program for how to distribute a vaccine among countries that recognizes what's the most important thing. It recognizes the harms that the coronavirus are doing to countries. And so you want to use a vaccine to prevent the most harm in the world, both health harm in terms of mortality and other morbidities, as well as economic harms. And I think that's the fair way of distributing it. That's the fair way. I'm curious. China is obviously also working on vaccines, homegrown companies funded by the Chinese government. Given the kind of increased political tensions between the two countries, particularly coming from the White House and Beijing, should there be any worries that if the call it the leading or the winning or the first vaccine comes out of China, that the U.S. isn't going to get it? I think there's got to be a worry of everyone. They've got 1.4 billion people. If they want to get it to all their people, you know, it's going to be months or years before anyone else gets them. So this has to be a worry for everyone. I do think recognizing that the technologies used here are ones that are wide, were developed over time in many different countries, that a lot of the techniques are shared in the world. We need a different approach other than me, 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 my country, my country, because that's not going to be wise either for restarting the economy, for travel, for example, and for not having the coronavirus come back and infect the country. I should also say, Dan, one of the big issues here that we haven't talked about is the issue of durability. Implicit in some of your questions is it's like going to be a one and done or a one and we won't have to get it again for a few years. That may not be the case. It's that the body appears, at least for coronaviruses, not to make antibodies for a long time. For whatever reason, it doesn't seem to trigger that immune response. And so what you're seeing, and there's been some recent reports out of China, which I'm sure you're aware of, that people get the antibody, it goes up, but after two or three months, those antibody levels go down. And that has to be a serious worry. Re-immunizing people every two or three months of this thing, that's not uh, plausible. In the United States, pharmaceutical companies in general have become political punching bags on both sides of the aisle. Everyone likes to hate pharma companies. 
if an American pharma company is the one that does successfully come out with a vaccine first, does that change the political math of pharmaceutical companies, particularly if it is somehow done in a low priced, we can all afford it way? So most pharmaceutical companies are planning not to make any profit on this. They're doing this as a goodwill gesture and for the prestige of winning the race. They're not going to sell it and it is going to be affordable to everyone. And we're going to figure out how to get everyone the vaccine. I don't have any doubt about that. And they are, I think, partly doing this at cost because they do want to burnish their image as not rapacious and as good guys and good citizens coming to the aid of the country. But that doesn't solve the other problem, which is, let's be honest, the U.S. has about about four to four and a half percent of the world's population. But we spend about 40 to 45 percent of all the money for all the drugs in the world. We're almost at half a trillion dollars a year going just for drugs in this country. And almost everyone agrees it's too high. That leads me to my final question. The name of your new book is Which Country Has the World's Best Healthcare? With a question mark at the end. From the way you just said it, I am going to guess that the United States is not the answer to that question. We were just talking about drugs. We weren't talking about the whole healthcare system. But Dan, you fair enough. I will say the US isn't in the top 10 in terms of healthcare systems. On the other hand, it's not the worst healthcare system. I think actually China is worse than the United States. If you come to drug prices, there are many places in the world that have much, much better drug prices. Not many places. Every country has better drug prices than the United States. If you want places with really low drug prices, you might look to places like Australia, Taiwan, Norway. And we describe in our book why they have much better pricing than we do. And we get suggestions about if we're going to regulate drug prices, how we can do it in a very intelligent way. Dr. Zeke Emanuel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been great. Welcome back. What we're watching today is the ballot box. There are hotly contested Democratic primaries in both Kentucky and New York, and both of them threaten to shake up the establishment. In Kentucky, it's a state rep named Charles Booker who wants to take on Mitch McConnell in the general election, despite the Democrats having handpicked former fighter pilot Amy McGrath. In New York, it's a former middle school principal named Jamal Bowman, possibly taking out 16-term Congressman Elliot Engel. Both of the upstarts are more progressive than their rivals, both are black, and both have been much more present at recent rallies for racial justice. Beyond the results, we're also watching how easily people are able to actually vote as a possible preview of November. In Kentucky, for example, 95% of the regular polling places aren't open today, ostensibly because of COVID. In fact, there is only one open polling place in all of Louisville, despite a population of around 600,000 people. If things go poorly, expect an even louder fight over mail-in voting. Today, we're also watching trade with China. White House Trade Advisor Peter Navarro made markets tremble last night when he told Fox News that a deal between D.C. and Beijing was, quote, over. But then President Trump contradicted him on Twitter, and White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow said that Navarro had misspoke. The question now is if Navarro was simply saying what the White House knows but doesn't want to publicly admit, particularly given increased rhetoric about the coronavirus and yesterday's visa program suspensions, which will certainly impact plenty of Chinese nationals. And finally today, we're not watching Segway. Well, not anymore, because it's ending production of its magic people movers on July 15th. Segway never created the urban transportation revolution it had promised, but at least we all got Paul Blart out of it. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national Pecan Sandy Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.